The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome back to Officially Unofficial, presented by Blue Wire Podcast. We are now joined by a very special guest. And if you listen to this show, you know this is a guest that's close to my heart because he's an MLB grizzled vet. He's been there. He's seen some shit. He's seen it all. 12-year MLB vet. It's my pleasure to welcome Glendon Rush to the Official Unofficial Podcast. How are we, brother? I'm good. How are you? Good. Did I pronounce that correct, by the way? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're on. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I tell everybody it's uh, like Rush, the band with a C. Okay, so there it is. So now we're so we're already buzzing right out of the gate. I'm already getting the last name right. But I want to obviously we don't have much time, so I want to get right into it for a second here. So you played in the I'm not going to make you feel old here, but you made your debut a month before I was born, a pretty good amount of time ago. But I, before, but I gotta ask. Back in the day, obviously no cameras, none of that stuff around. Um, what was your rookie initiation like? I asked that. I asked it to uh, Tyson Ross. Yeah. Back in the day, obviously they had you guys doing some funny ass shit. So what was yours? Well, we, you know, they dressed us up as rookies. Um, I was dressed, I believe, as a kind of a matronly woman that was on the road trip towards the end of the year when we were in Anaheim. But early in the year, nothing bad. I mean, they those guys were actually really good to me. We had a great core of veteran guys on that team in Kansas City with Tim Belcher, Jeff Montgomery, Kevin Apier. Um, those guys took good care of me. Chili Davis. He's so got some some names going way back. Terry Pendleton. Good crew. Wow. I mean, these are a bunch of major league legends. So you were playing in 97, which means, and I was looking at your Twitter background picture, you got the privilege to play at Yankee Stadium. So I want to go into that because that's the only Yankee Stadium that I've been to. I'm obviously, if you don't know, I'm from Toronto. So that's the stadium that I got to see when I was a child. What was it like being a visitor there? I heard the visitor, the visitor locker room is pretty much like a little high school locker room, right? Like, what was it like playing there? Yeah, it wasn't that big. I think it was just cool from a nostalgic you know point i mean you go you go uh as a kid you watch all those games growing up and collect baseball cards and do everything else and see those stadiums you know fenway wrigley yankee stadium all yeah. the famous ones and so so to get to go there as a player and play is incredible so when were you a big like obviously like the nostalgia of it when you were there were you like i can't believe i'm at yankee stadium right now or what was it like to be a, like a vi- like a visitor there or just a baseball fan growing up playing there yeah, it's pretty, it can, it can be a little overwhelming at times. I, I think if I remember correctly, this is a long ways back, but I'm pretty sure I pitched 
when I came in with Kansas City the first time, I'm pretty sure I pitched the first day in. So so I got there, you know, got the park early in the afternoon and walked down and sat in the dugout and kind of checked it all out and then went up and got ready for my start. So I, I got initiated quick. So who was a couple of guys on that team? Obviously, you got to face the Jeters of the world, all those type of guys. But in that lineup, being a visitor there, who was one guy in that lineup that you thought was the hardest to pitch to that was the scariest to pitch to when he would step in the box. I had a hard time with Bernie Williams, man. He hit, he saw the ball well off me, hit me well. Um, Jeter swung in a good against me. They, they were loaded. Uh, the lefties were tough too. You know, Paul O'Neill and Tino Martinez going through those, those key years when they won all those championships, man, that, but their lineup every year was good. Top to bottom, all the way down to Brocious and, and everyone else they had through the years. Yeah, no, I, like I said, and listen, I have a take here, and maybe you can kind of talk me out of it. I don't think Derek Jeter was that good, as good as people portray him to be. Maybe you could talk me out of it because in my mind, and listen, I, I'm an anti-Yankee guy, so that might be why, but in my mind, that lineup he had hitting behind him, he kind of had a pretty good amount of protection, there, so they had to pitch to him. And if you look at his defensive stats, he wasn't one of the best fielders. I mean, I don't know if this is a true fact, but I'm pretty sure he's one of the worst defensive shortstops in the Hall of Fame right now. Where do you stand on that camp? Obviously, we're not trying to get a take. I'm just wondering because you got the, the privilege to see him live and face him. Where do you stand on that camp? I always was in the camp of I felt like he was a premier player. Um, you know, now they go back and look at defensive metrics and and maybe he was not you know, at the top of the elite guys and the shortstop from a defensive metric standpoint, but he was a winner. He was a gamer. He played every single day. I've given anything to have that guy on my team at some point uh, just to play with him and be teammates with him. He's one of the, one of the few guys I always just viewed as he was a franchise leader. And then you look at how many championships he won. Now, of course he's surrounded by a good group of guys and, and really good players. But no, I'm, I'm. Can you hear me? Yeah, we lose audio. Oh yeah, we're good now. We're good now. Okay. Okay. So that, that, that's a good. I mean, that's a good point. You're making a good point. Obviously, he was a very good player. I'm just an anti-Yankee guy, which is why I'm a hater, I guess you could say. But we're yeah. speaking about the Yankees here, and you got to live and you got to play in the heart of the rivalry. Maybe one of the greatest, in my opinion, one of the most like just not cinematic, but. I guess you could say cinematic, a climactic World Series, Yankees, Mets, Subway Series. You were a part of it. I was obviously too young to remember it. The only memory I have of it is watching these videos of like the, the highlights and just the fans and like how packed that stadiums was and all that stuff. What was it like being a part of the Subway Series, especially because we have a younger listeners, younger, younger following here. Just give a little background on how much that meant as a player and like the hatred between the Yankees and the Mets at that time. Well, I'll start with what, so in my rookie year in 97 was the first year of interleague play. And so that's when you started to see the real rival um, interleague matchups. So yeah, it yeah. was for me, the first thing I saw was Kansas city and St. Louis, right. Royals Cardinals playing each other. And then when I um, went to Milwaukee, there was, there was, you know, the rivalry there with you'd go across and play the twins. Um, but in New York, I'll tell you what the the Mets Yankees matchups were incredible in the regular season. So then to, to go on and do it in the postseason and uh, the first World Series where we played each other in fifty plus years and and that city was electric and a lot of fun. 
And you got to pitch one of those games. So listen, I'm a guy that many would say is a mental midget because I have below my body weight in junior college, as many know. What was it like being on the mound in a World Series game? Because obviously you pitched in the NLDS, you pitched in the NLCS that year, but you got a chance to pitch in the World Series. You were in three games. Is that good for people listening? Three goddamn games you pitched in the Subway Series. That's something you tell your grandkids about. So how nervous were you that game one of the World Series on the mound? There's millions and millions of people watching you on the bump. You have the fucking ball in your hand. What was it like to just be a part of that moment? And what was running through your head at that time? Well, I was, I'm, I mean, my knees were, felt like rubber. My legs <laughs> felt like rubber. I mean, but I, I shouldn't have pitched in game one. You know, they came back and tied that game in the ninth off Armando Benitez. We were winning three to two. And um, I tell people all the time, that was the, maybe one of the most exciting moments in my career that never should have happened. I wish yeah. it didn't happen because I wish we won that game three to two, but it was awesome. And okay. So what did you use? Like what, Obviously, now we have the mental skills coaches and all that kind of stuff. But what did you use to kind of make you kind of not make the moment too big in that time? Were you just like, a, I don't give a fuck guy or what were, maybe you'd throw a dip in? What, what were you doing? I was pretty zoned in as far as just being ready to pitch. And uh, as soon as that game shifted into extra innings, I felt like there's a chance, right? Depending on whatever situation happens. And I ended up in a situation that that probably 99 out of 100 times you bring a right-hander in. We started that inning with Dennis Cook, a left-hander on the mound, and I ended up coming in behind him. So, um, yeah, just so, sometimes the, oh, shit, it's my turn, is it can be the best, right? You don't have a, you don't have a ton of time to overthink everything, and, and you're, you're ready to roll. And we talk about Yankee fans on this show, and they are ruthless individuals. You being a Mets pitcher, and obviously you were – in the bullpen at the time and you were in the bullpen warming up at Yankee stadium when the fans have a little bit of liquor courage and they're kind of getting after you guys, they're right on top of you guys, right in the bullpen. What was some of the shit that fans would say to you? Were they just letting that shit fly or were they like a little bit more respectful? Cause it was the world. like, what was happening? Uh, they, you know, the typical stuff they're, they're telling you <laughs> you suck and how bad you are and everything else. Not nothing crazy, but I remember it being loud and, and, I mean, we were in their house, right? Game one, we were in, in their house and, and the fans let you know it. And it starts, I mean, God, it starts when you ride the bus over from Shea Stadium. I mean, there's giving you the, you know, the one finger salute all the way along the, the highway. And we got the, you know, the, the, I mean, they have to take a police escort and escort us from Shea over to Yankee Stadium. And there's, we get off the bus at Yankee Stadium. There's 1500 fans there waiting to flip you off and tell you you suck. And it, yeah, they, 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 uh, they hold nothing back. They're ready to roll. I can respect that about them, though. They honestly, they don't like, and you always hear this stuff on the internet, like they wouldn't say it to my face or they won't do that. They won't do that. Yankee fans will say it to your face. I, yes. We've had stories on this podcast of Yankee fans throwing bobbleheads at opposing players, like like drinks on players in the bullpen. They are crazy, man. They, I mean, that fan base is also kind of delusional to a certain extent. But yeah, no, they're crazy, crazy fans. But when you guys were in that World Series, though, and obviously, like, you were playing with the Royals before. Obviously, team not as competitive as the Mets at that time. What was that Mets team like? Like, what was the locker room like? Because obviously, there's a bunch of legends that played there, right? So what was that locker room like? Who was the 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 jester in the locker room that keep the, kept the boys loose? Who was the like, – who, who was that – like, who was the main guy? Obviously, Piazza was there, of course. But who was the vocal leader and, like, the jester, the funny guy? Um, I would say Johnny Franco was kind of our – you know, he was he was our captain, man. He was the guy that – 
had been there. He's a, he's a New York guy and, and bled New York blood. And, and he's, he was, he was it. And, you know, from a, from a leadership standpoint, we had a bunch, I mean, Mike, Mike definitely was a leader by example, Piazza and, and Al Leiter and all those guys. Um, and the guys out in the pen too, Turk Wendell. And, and we had a whole, whole great crew of, that was a really good clubhouse and, and Todd Zeal, Robin Ventura, man, what a, I mean, I was lucky. I really was. And, and being a young guy on that team, I learned a lot and, and uh, I grew a lot. And you mentioned Mike Piazza. We've never had a guy on this podcast that used to play, uh, that played with Mike Piazza. What was this guy like to see day in and day out? And obviously you got the, the privilege. You had the privilege to throw to this guy who's a Hall of Famer, legend, maybe one of the best to ever do it behind the dish. What was Mike Piazza like as a teammate, as well as a guy you got to like throw to? Did he make you substantially better just by some of the stuff he told you, or he didn't really tell you anything? Incredible teammate. Um, he, for me, he kept it simple with me, you know, with how I worked uh, my game as a pitcher, which was good for me. That was a benefit. Uh, very intense gamer, competitor, wanted to win. Um, awesome teammate great friend off the field. Uh, I still keep in touch with him to this day. And, and uh, I, I love that I got the opportunity to play with him and win with him. He's just, I love Mike Piazza, man. And that subway, if you think of that subway series, obviously, if I have it correctly, the rocket was a part of that as well. Roger Clemens, right? That was the massive hatred between the Mets and Ro Roger Clemens. Did you get a chance to like talk to your hitters at that point during this, that series and be like, what's it like going up against them? Like, what are you guys seeing against them? What is he doing so well? Or like, was there no, what, were they like talkative about that in the law in the locker room or telling the pitchers stuff that they see from him that makes him successful? Well, I think that the, you know, from their approach standpoint, the hitters were, you know, what Roger's going to do. And, and if he's on his game, he's going to be really tough to hit. And he was, he was on his game man, uh, late in that year, second half and into the playoffs and in the, into the world series. So he was, he was tough on us. And then, and then you tack on, uh, the way Pettit was throwing the ball, El Duque, and then and then get into their bullpen, man. Stanton, Nelson, and Rivera were essentially unhittable. I think we touched them up in one of the games, but we we didn't score off of them, so they they shut it down. And what and what a name you just mentioned, man! Holy shit, El Duque. Do you feel like El Duque was one of those guys that was just not forgotten about, but a guy that's not nearly as talked about as he should have been because he was a massive part of that Yankees team, but kind of got lost in the shuffle with Andy Pettit, all Roger Clemens, all these massive superstars. So, I mean, El Duque was a freak, man. Yeah. He slid under the radar a little bit, but for me, I, I love watching him pitch, man, because he did it all, you know, he mixed he multiple arm angles. Uh, he was fun. He was fun to watch. And uh, yeah, that's why I threw him in there. I mean, I, he was a huge part of their team and, and, uh, and, a, and a competitor, man. That guy knew how to win. And I'm going to start this narrative because we're big Glendon Rush guys, by the way. So, like I said, I'll be, I'll be fighting the good fight on you for the, on the internet and stuff like that. Everyone comes out. Anyone comes at you, you have us to be your burner account. <laughs> I love it. I love Glendon it. Glendon Rush is yeah. the second, behind Mariano Rivera, the second greatest postseason pitcher of all time. You have a 108 ERA. We're not going to look at how many innings you threw, but it's a 108 <laughs> ERA. So, anyone comes at you on Twitter – or whatever. I want you, I'm going to screenshot this 108 ERA in the postseason, and yeah. we're going to like cut out the innings, cut out how many games you were participated in. You only were there for one year, but 108 ERA in the postseason. I mean, do you have obviously you have kids now and you you coach and you all that kind of stuff? Have you got the opportunity to like tell stories about obviously, man, you you weren't no run of the mill guy, you were an unbelievable pitcher in the postseason. 
Um, have you got the chance to kind of look back at that and be like, I can't believe how like how well I did exactly do in that 2000 run that I had with the Mets? Of course, that's one of my favorite things is to brag to the kids, right? That's all <laughs> I have left, man. I do. Yeah. No, I love doing that. And I, I love talking, uh, talking pitching and I, and I love talking hitting. I love talking shit about hitting for sure. Uh, that's, that was fun. I, I enjoyed being in the national league. Um, but it, the, the kids are a blast, man, because when you go back and throw out names to kids now, they don't, they don't have an idea who some of those dudes are. No idea. Like, they don't know who the, who those guys are. So when you talk about what we thought was a, you know, a middle of the lineup perennial power hitter back in the late nineties, they have no idea who you're talking about. Some of them. Exactly. I mean, you and we, we're not going to bring up this stat, obviously, because we're Glenn and Rush guys, but you are 0 for 6 at the plate in the playoffs. But I'm not going to, like I said, I'm not going to bring that up. Is that correct? I believe you're 0 for 6. Do I have that number right? You I hit. don't think I got any. Uh, oh, actually, you're right. No, no plate appearances. You got one plate appearance. I got a sack bunt. One. I got a sack bunt. Oh, you're right. It doesn't count as it wasn't registered as a hit. It says one plate appearance. So you're actually yep. 0 for 0. Okay. Yeah, I'm that's 0 for another, 0. That's another stat we could bring up, too. All right. So would you say you miss the implementation of pitchers hitting in the lineup looking at the game now or no? Um, I, I like the national league style. Cause that's where I was, you know, after I got traded from Kansas city, I was in the national league the rest of my career. So I loved hitting. I love bunting. I loved working on my craft and that being a part of trying to win a ball game. I love the double switch, the strategy behind it and all that. I'm, I'm going to miss the national league game. I really am. I'm, I'm kind of bummed it's gone. Well, for, from my standpoint, obviously, I'm a big degenerate gambler, so I like to bet uh, pitcher prop strikeout. So it kind of be kind of helped me out when you have pitchers in the lineup hitting. But RIP to those days, you just hate to see it. Now we got DH guys that are just absolutely mashing in the lineup everywhere yeah. in the league now. But it's whatever. So I wanted to also go into the friendly confines. We're going to skip Milwaukee, obviously, because I want to talk about the Chicago Cubs. Okay. One of the most historic organizations, maybe in all of sports, not even trying to pump their tires, what was it like the first time you stepped foot as a Chicago Cub at Wrigley? Because you absolutely carved your first season with the Cubs. 6-2 with a 3-4-7. Like I told you, we're going to be tire pumping you all episode. So what was your time like there the first time you stepped foot as a Chicago Cub, man? I mean, what, what, a, what a franchise, what a fan base. It was awesome. I, I was super excited to get an opportunity with them. Uh, they were one of the teams that kind of uh, courted me that off season. I ended up signing with the Rangers, um, and went to spring training with them in 2004, but I didn't make the team. So on the last day of spring training, I, I took my out clause in my contract and signed with the Cubs the same day. And then being there was phenomenal. Loved it coming off the season. They just had in 2003, we had a yep. great, you know, great crew, awesome pitching staff, great offense and, and guys behind me. And, and one of my favorite managers ever, Dusty Baker, for sure. I mean, Legend. our whole Whole coaching staff was phenomenal. And obviously, like I said, younger, younger listeners on this podcast, but the, the, this, this roster just is bananas. You had Nomar Garcia Parra on the bench of this team, like a legend with the Red Sox. You got Sammy Sosa, Moises Alou, Aramis Ramirez, Derek Lee, Greg Maddox, Carlos Zambrano, Kerry Wood. So when we're mentioning all these names, that must have just been the most electric plane rides, bus rides ever. Were they were the boys just gambling on the bus, having a good time? Like, what was that clubhouse like? Yeah, big. There's big uh, card game. They were they were <laughs> definitely uh, some poker guys on that squad. Um, great on and off the field. Tons of tons of my best buddies to this day. A bunch of us still keep in contact. Uh, I loved it. I had a I had a great time there. The city was fun. You know, it's cool when you uh, you 
have to get used to it, but playing all the day games is kind of cool. I'll have a nice dinner and, and, and live a little bit more of a normal life playing a lot of the 12, 20 and 120 games. I love the 120 games. You know, I, I, like, I, I love it obviously from a standpoint, like I said, the generic gambler is something to gamble on at two o'clock PM when you're at work or whatever grinding, grinding. but it's just absolutely electric, the two o'clock games, but I got to talk about Sammy Sosa, Sammy Sosa right? right? I mean, what, what was, yeah. what, what, what was, what was the reception or what was it like playing us alongside Sammy Sosa? It, well, he, you know, Sammy was Chicago. I mean, the, <laughs> yeah. those fans there just loved him and he put up so many great seasons there. I caught him towards the end of his career. He was still raking. I think he hit, I don't know if he hit 30 to 40 that year, probably in 35, in 35, yeah, 35, 35 in, in 2004. I mean, he was electric. Look, everyone came to the ballpark to see him. They came to watch him take BP. Um, super fun, loving guy. Loved, loved playing. And and uh, I look, I would have liked to see a few more years of him there in his prime. But I, I was on the other side of the ball when when he was hitting sixty. <laughs> Dude, and this lineup. I know I just mentioned the names. Absolutely ridiculous. You had Sammy Sosa with thirty five, Moises Alou with thirty nine. And then you had Aramis Ramirez with 36 and Derek Lee with 32. Yeah. How easy was that as a pitcher when you yeah. could give up five or six and you know damn well that middle of the lineup is going to just be putting up seven. No, I mean, we were, yeah, we were scoring. And then I think D Lee comes back and might've been the next year or whatever and hits like 45. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, they, we were loaded. Um, and those guys were, those guys were gamers, man. The whole, all up and down the whole lineup and, you know, throw Nomar in there. Todd Walker played really well for us. Corey Patterson, uh, bench players were awesome. You know, we had some we had some really good guys off the bench too. Um, it was it was a lot of fun. That there's there's no place like Wrigley in in the spring and summer and when the Ivy gets going and there's forty thousand people. You know, it's a forty thousand seat bar basically. So those those people are having fun there. Yeah, and no, man, man, like I, I just I can't even imagine what it would have been like to play there at the time. Because obviously, those fans show up when they're bad, when they're good, they show up, right? I mean, at that time, you guys obviously finished in third place. That was a very hard division. You guys were eighty nine and seventy three, and you finished in third. What? Yeah, we were, we were, I think, a game or a game and a half maybe out of winning the wild card going into like the last week of the season, and we we struggled in the last week and. We, we, we had a tough series in New York, I remember, in the last couple of weeks, and then we came in. And But realistically, yeah, we should have we should have gotten the playoffs that year. And I'm mentioning all these names of guys that you – like legendary guys you played alongside with. Who would you say during your career is the best hitter you've ever seen live or the best hitter you've ever played alongside where he, he just comes so natural to him? As a teammate? teammate. Uh, a teammate probably – Piazza was pretty tough to – tough to beat. Um Going on the other side of the ball at all the guys I faced, Albert Pujols was the guy that could do the most damage in the most different ways. Uh, I mean, he's still hitting today, which is phenomenal. But, <laughs> yeah. but you know, I mean, when I saw him, it was throughout the years of when he was just the machine, What you know, his nickname. Yeah. Good God, man, that guy could he could hit everything and, and you had to be careful. And, and he was he was fun to watch. What would you say Albert Pujols is lifetime against you? I don't know. Um, I know he got me a few times. I'm sure I gave up at least a few homers to him, but we faced each other a lot. I guess I'm guessing we faced each other 40 plus times. 
Yeah, someone listening, find that for me. Obviously, like, that's just absolutely bananas that you got to face. And it's just, looking back on it, right? Like, especially being a guy like you that's retired now and all that stuff, does it make it, cr- how crazy is it looking and Albert Pujols is still playing major league, at a major league level? That is crazy. My my uh, my kids, my boys want to actually, on Sunday, they want to go up to Cincinnati. I live in Louisville, so I'm like an hour and 15 from Cincy, and they wanted to go up this Sunday and see the Cardinals. They're coming into town. And I was like, that would be pretty cool to see Albert in person again. And it, I, it, I don't know if people can even comprehend how difficult it is to do what he's doing at his age. It's not, you know, the pitching is the stuff has only gotten better. You know, there's more velocity, tons and tons of really good pitching. Uh, so to be able to do what he's doing is incredible. It's just, it's just, I love Albert Poo. Just first ballot, hopefully 100% Hall of Famer. Like no one, no, no idiot baseball writers leave him off the list because he deserves that, man. I mean, yeah. just he's just such a massive part of the game. And by the way, the Cubs attendance for the year you played in 2004, 3,170,000 people attended games. That yeah. is yeah. insane. That, yeah, I mean, they, they came out, man. They, they, they were there in, in force and, supportive and couldn't ask for anything more from that from that fan base they're incredible so looking back on that career like i said i mean as you're retired now do you kind of refer to when people ask you do you refer to yourself as like a chicago cut like what team do you claim the most that you played for when when people ask and what a good question for me by the way i mean just just incredible shit you love to see it no that is a good one actually because it's it's difficult i i would say that i probably relate most and and, and still keep up most with the Mets and the Cubs. Um, I came up with Kansas city, obviously played in Chicago, shorter stints in in Colorado and San Diego, but um, a lot of special memories in New York with the Mets and going to the world series. And then three, you know, three years in Chicago were, were awesome. And I met, I met a lot of great people there and I still go to the Cubs convention in the off season when they invite me, which is great to come back and, and share with those fans. And we, we, we talked about the greatest pitcher or the hit, greatest, greatest hitter you've played with and played against. Who is the greatest pitcher you've played alongside where you're like, I wish I had that shit? Well, I mean, I was with Maddox for three years in Chicago and part of a year in San Diego. There's there's nobody better than him. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he was a joy to watch. I got to see him a little bit later in his career, wasn't in his you know, prime, prime Maddox days, but he was still winning 15 plus games every year. Smartest pitcher on the mound game plan, second to none. Uh, it was always great to pick, pick his brain and, and get some knowledge from him. And, and he would only give you stuff sporadically. You know, he would, he would only give you something to help you if he really felt it was a legitimate tidbit that you needed. Other than that, he wasn't just offering up a bunch of BS information. I feel like Greg Maddox is one of those guys where, he's so good where he can't comprehend like let's just say the average MLB pitcher where he's like why aren't you hitting your spot or why like why why aren't you going eight shutties I feel yeah. like that's who Greg Maddox is right like what what being in the bullpen and being like just seeing the bullpen guys when Greg Maddox is in the game where you guys just like all right like I can maybe have a beer pregame like this is this is a night off for the boys or what uh <laughs> I, w- I would say not as much then when we were with him as earlier in his career because he was he was going on some shorter stints then, but you know what he was? He was so self-aware of where he was at in his career that he knew when he was done, he would, he would let, you know, the manager or the pitching coach 
No, like, Hey man, I'm done. Like let, let the reliever face this guy or, or I'm done after five and a third or I'm done after six. I mean, he's, that's just the kind of guy he was and, and uh, everyone knew it. And man, there's so many, I, I, I look back at kind of each group I was with coming up and, you know, being, I was with Kevin Apier, who was an incredible pitcher in the American league. I was with him again in New York, but you kind of go along each spot that I was at and to be around some of those pitchers uh, with Al Leiter and Mike Hampton in New York, man. I mean, I, I learned so much from those guys and a lot of it was mental and confidence and how to be prepared and, and be ready to go out and compete every five days when it's your turn. Yeah. And I actually forgot to ask you this question about the Mets. There's one manager you played for on the Mets who, in my opinion, is one of the funniest managers, most electric managers in MLB history, a man by the name of Bobby Valentine, the guy that got kicked out of a game, put sunglasses on, came back in the dugout for the younger listeners that don't know that he came back in the dugout with sunglasses on and him and the umpire just had a stare down from hell. Like, Bobby, what the fuck are you doing in the dugout? <laughs> what was it like playing with Bob, playing for Bobby Valentine? Uh, well, Bobby and I have a very special relationship because he was the guy that kind of gave me an opportunity in 2000 when I what, there was there was a kind of a battle going into spring training of who was going to be the fifth starter in that rotation, and uh, he gave me an opportunity, believed in me, and did everything from help me find a place to live in Stanford, Connecticut, where he's from during the season to just was great with me and my wife and my family. And, and I uh, love Bobby and we still keep in contact and he was a blast to play for very animated. Loved the, <laughs> I, I wish I could have been there when that was right before I got traded. There was when he came back with the mustache and the glasses, <laughs> but that was great. Yeah, no, he's a character, man. He's a, uh, he's a, uh, I don't want to call him a politician, Cause that, that could be a, a negative term, but he's, he's very much a, he gives off that aura, right? He, you walk into a room with Bobby B man and you feel, everyone feels like, Hey, I'm in a, I'm in a room with this great, great man and fun to listen to and great storyteller. Yeah. Bobby Valentine. One of the, one of the, one of the greatest of the game, man, just the guy that greatly missed in the game of baseball. He's so goddamn electric. I wish we had managers like that nowadays that are just, let it fly. Don't give a fuck about like not politically correctness, but just will rip in a, we kind of have that with Terry Francona actually, but he's kind of simmered off a little bit now, but I yeah. love those old style MLB managers that used to rip cigarettes in the dugout and pack the biggest dips ever. Those guys were electric. Maybe yeah, they, a couple, maybe they a couple don't have years. any, they don't have anything to argue anymore. That's probably part of the problem, right? Yeah. True. You know, Cause every, everything's so honed in now with replay. And I mean, the umpires are at the top of their game from behind the plate. Most of them are not Angel um, Hernandez, but yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so there's there's not a lot to fight about anymore. That's kind yeah. of part of the that they've lost a little bit of that luster. I just love it. I love having these like just hearing your guys' stories, and obviously, I mean, we'll, we'll get you on another time for for more stories, stuff like that. Because I love, I'm just fascinated with how the game of baseball used to be before, I guess the social media age and all that kind of stuff, because there is some crazy, incredible stories of just like the guys going out for a couple beers, having good times and just uh, the bonding and all that kind of stuff. So do you have, by the way, do you have that card that Tyson Ross was talking about where you get to go to any MLB game you want? Yes, I do. I have it here. It's actually behind me in my little case back is, there. Is, is that the biggest power move of all time? Like to show, because listen, if your kids try to think like my dad's not cool, my dad's this, my dad's that. Do you just pull that card on? Like, listen, listen, I can go to any fucking game I want. Like yeah. <laughs> you name it, I'm going to that. <laughs> you know, you know, okay. So here's the story of mine, right? I've had it for how many ever years since I retired. The only time I ever used it 
was all the years I lived in LA, I would use it when I took the boys to a Dodger game for free parking. <laughs> so you, you'd go up like the old guard shack where, where you would go in as a player, right? Into the park. And I would show them my gold card and they'd be like, oh, okay, go on in. And I'd go in and park. So I'd save the 25 bucks for parking. But I always generally had tickets because somebody would leave me tickets or whatever for the game. Yeah. So, so all those years go by. And now that I'm in, in Louisville, I went up to the Reds game. This is about three years ago. And I already had tickets. But I took my gold card with me and I said, you know what, I'm gonna see how this thing works. So I took it up to the ticket office and I said, here's my card. And the lady was awesome. She she basically said, where do you want to sit? Wow. She showed me the map and said, you guys want to sit, you know, above their dugout, above the visitors dugout, you know, and wow. they were whatever, like 15, 20 rows up above the dugout. Now, I don't know if it works that way at all 30 parks, but I know we get in all 30 parks, but no, it's it's a power move, dude. That That thing is awesome. <laughs> It's just the sickest thing of all time. And yeah. this is the last thing I want to ask you. Do you get recognized when you go back to like Wrigley or City Field like or Shea Stadium or stuff like that? Like, do you get recognized a lot or no? Yeah, those places I will um, because you've got your diehards, you know? Yeah, yeah. You've got like my generation of – because it's funny. You'll find a lot of fans that are, you know, younger generation fans like you would consider yourself uh, or, or the guys that are like my age or a little older and they're like, Oh yeah, I watched you when you're, you know, could maybe they were the same age or they were in high school or whatever, when they were really a fan. So, but definitely New Yorkers, man, they never forget you. And the, and the, and the Cubs fans. Yeah. Every time I go back there, I always run into some people. Well, like I said, man, I mean, a guy, and by the way, in your debut, you went eight innings, four hits, and you didn't give up a run. Is that good, listeners? You tell, Is that good, internet trolls? <laughs> like, put your fucking troll, put the trolls in your back pocket. You love to see it. I mean, it was a pleasure to have you all, man. I love, I love the old time stories. I love the, I love having guys like you on the podcast because nowadays, obviously, the guys, they, they're in the league still. So they're, they won't really let it fly. Or they won't tell these stories, stuff like that. And they're living in a different era, but. Yeah, it was a pleasure to have you on, man. And uh, hopefully, I mean, we're going to get you on another time and obviously get some more stories out of you. I'm going to weasel as many stories out of you as possible. But actually, we're going to say MLB legend Glendon Rush, man. I appreciate you hopping on this, man. 12 year MLB vet legend. Love to see it. I appreciate it. And I'll leave you with a I'll leave you with a good since you're a Toronto guy. So so uh, start number two. I was in in the Sky Dome in Toronto, yeah. and I faced, if we can remember some of these names, Robert Person, I believe, was the starting pitcher. <laughs> but their lineup had Carlos Delgado, wow. John Green, Alex Gonzalez. Um, I'll have to keep going to remember some more of them, but maybe Juan Samuel. I don't know. You have to look that game up. That would be my second start in the big leagues, but uh, pretty cool. Yeah, the Sky Dome, you were actually playing at the Sky Dome um, – when they had like the worst turf I've ever seen in my life that would borderline, like they might get sued for it now. Yeah. The Toronto turf and the Montreal turf was basically cement painted green. <laughs> Love that, man. I appreciate yeah. you coming on this man. And obviously, um, yeah, I, I, you guys, you said, you said you're close to Cincy. I'm not too far from Cincy. Maybe we'll fire a game or something in the near future. Watch some baseball. Just me, just a couple guys, a couple old time grizzled vets like me and you, you know, sounds good, man. Thank you for listening to Officially Unofficial. Make sure you guys subscribe and leave a review on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Pod and on Instagram at Officially Unofficial Pod. Thank you. <laughs>